And Lord, we do ask that you'd open your word to us. Give us ears to hear all that your spirit is saying to the church this evening. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So the children of Israel are working their way out of Egypt towards the promised land. And uh, we saw last week, uh, Phil was here, our new senior pastor who's back in Hungary, uh, left Monday to head back that way. Um, and uh, he did a great teaching on manna and, uh, and the obedience of receiving manna and the, uh, the power of that food from heaven. And um, we come now to chapter 17, and they're moving a little farther in their journey. In chapter 17, verse 1 to verse 4, we'll start off with, And all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sassin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. So, you know, a few of the little more... Uh, Short-tempered guys reached over and picked up some rocks, and, and Moses was having a heated conversation, and he realizes, I better, I better go. <laughs> and he just comes back to his tent and just sort of collapses and just says, Lord, we've barely gotten going, and I'm, I'm done, man. I'm, this is hard. Now, I, I can tell you this. I have never... In all my 32 years of senior pastoring and assistant pastoring and youth pastoring before that, I've never said to a young man, why don't you consider going into the ministry? Never said that, not once. Because it's a brutal place. <laughs> and you gotta know that you know that you know that God has called you to do that. Now, if they, say, okay, yeah, I, I get it, Brian, but, I, you know, I, I want to be in the ministry. I'll, tra I'll train you. I'll, I'll, I can do that. And, uh, but uh, a few of the guys that are here tonight can tell you that uh, the first several studies are uh, the reality of um, it's going to be tough, and, and you've got to prepare yourself. Um, I was just talking to a pastor, senior pastor today, and... Um, and he said, yeah, I've been pastoring a few years, and last year I was ready to quit. And uh, because I was just, I was doing the best I could. I got a full-time job. I'm trying to pastor. I'm trying to love these people. And it's just, they're brutalizing my poor wife and my kids and me. And, and uh, I just said, I took, brought the leaders together and just said, guys, I, I quit. I just can't. I don't have the emotional stamina here or the, or the emotional ability to, to, to get pounded like this, you know, year after year. And uh, they encouraged him and he stayed in the ministry. But this is standard. Now, if you're married, you know what a brutal business that is. 
If you're a parent, you, you know what we're talking about here, right? You know, I, I remember the last few vacations with my teenage kids screaming my mantra, I'll never go on a vacation with you guys again. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, you know, but the fact is, is as a husband, you got to get your eyes on the Lord and push forward. As a parent, you got to get your eyes on the Lord and push forward. Wherever you're leading, you got to do exactly what Moses said and said, this is brutal business. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can. Um, and, you know, I, I would have thought, you know, bringing them manna food out of heaven for them would have bought me a few days of, uh, you know, the poles going up, um, uh, a little bit of favor, a little heat off. But nope, nope, uh, just one difficulty, one crisis to another, and, and they're being confronted um, with, with uh, the, the brutal reaction of the people. You know, you, this is all your fault that we're here, Moses. Your leadership has brought it to this place, and I can see your master plan. You're going to kill us. Worse, you're going to kill our children. Worse, you're going to kill our poor little animals. And uh, Moses is like, what? why are you yelling at me? Why are you guys angry at me? And, and don't you realize you're, you're testing the Lord, you're tempting the Lord. You know, the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge is to fear God. What's that mean? To, to have a reverence for him. To have a sense that he is God. And I need to respect that. I need to honor that. He created this world. He created everything in it. He's all-powerful, all-knowing all loving, all merciful. And, and we need to just stop when we get frustrated and angry and cursing under our breath, or maybe not under our breath, and, uh, and, and just say, God, you're, you're in this. It's painful. It's hard. But our faith should be revealed in the fact that we say, even if we suffer and die, You've got us. You got us. You got it. I remember, uh, well, 18 years ago now, the Y2K. Maybe some of you guys remember that. But boy, I had people screaming at me that I wasn't telling them, telling everybody in the church to go get their dried food and their 50-gallon barrel of rice and, uh, you know, their 200 gallons of water and, and getting ready for the Y2K. And I, I just said, look, the Bible says don't do that. Don't worry about it. We're going to eat, drink, wear it. I'm not... I'm not going to strive and, you know, and, they, and boy, they were mad at me. Uh, left the church. I'm not going to share my food with you bunch of idiots and, you know, and so forth. And I, I just, I just remember thinking, wow, you know, the crisis has hit. And I think everybody's knee-jerk reaction was fear. But then you got to come back around and just say, Lord, you've got us. I mean, everything tells me you got us. But, you know, their, their actual problem uh, was not the problem. It was their attitude. And, uh, you know, our, our needs as humans is first air. You know, we will do anything to get air if we're underwater or, you know, having a hard time breathing. Secondly is thirst. We have to have water. Uh, and then after that is food. 
And then after that is sex drive to continue the population of the world. And it's a very strong drive. So these things are all understandable. There's nothing wrong with those needs, but it, they, they, they tempted the Lord. They contended with Moses rather than saying, okay, God, you brought us to a place, a desert. Um, we traveled with the absolute hopes that we were going to get water in this place. And we are surprised, and our knee-jerk reaction is to be angry. It was somebody, okay, Moses, you know, it's lonely at the top. We'll yell at you, and then we'll get mad at God. And that, that's, that's, God understands us, you know. The psalm says, God knows our frame. He knows we're but dust. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities us. He's, he's not looking at these guys and all upset with them. He's like, you're learning, you're growing, you're maturing, and, and I, I get it. But let, let's just stop and, and, and recognize that God is taking us into the desert. God is bringing us on purpose to a place where we will thirst. Why? So he can meet those needs. But if we didn't thirst then we wouldn't crave, then we wouldn't call out and say, God, I'm thirsty. I, I'm, I'm, I'm desperate and desperately in need of what you have. And so it's just, it's standard. But it's just amazing how horrible we are still, right? I mean, I, I wish I could go through the desert going, ah, oh, I've been here, done that for, oh, uh, hundreds of times now. I know exactly how this goes. I'm thirsting and, uh, you know, and, oh, thank you, Lord, you're going to do this. You know, you're going to turn around. I mean, you start off that way now a little bit, you know. Then you get a couple days into it, and, and uh, the faith starts to waver a little bit, and gets a little harder. But either way, God is sovereign, isn't he? You know, he's like, hey, you, you can think of, like, some little insignificant thing. You see a little tiny bird that you'd never even hardly notice just fall to the ground dead, or maybe you walk by a dead Bird, and you, you know, you don't even give a second of time to it. It's sort of, yeah, there's so many birds and they die. And, and God says, it may seem insignificant to man, but I know. I notice it. I did not, not notice that. It wasn't insignificant. It, was, it wasn't like um, there's no purpose or design in it. I, even in that, down to every hair on your head, um, no coincidences in God's kingdom. Right? Um, th there is a reason. There is a reason. And we just have to, by faith, say, God, I may not see that reason until the day I go to heaven and, you know, go to the archives and look it up and say, oh, yeah, back in 1988, now I know what you were, oh, okay, God, oh, that was so wise, God. But, but, you know, on the earth, you're just going, man, that was bad luck. That was hard. Where was God when I needed him? Uh, man, I'm still hurting over that. And, and God's like, no, I didn't give you second best. I, I've got you on this. So um, in verse 5 and 6, the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take it in your hand, your rod, which you struck the river and go. Now notice in verse 5, your rod. That rod that you touched the Nile and it turned to blood, that one. Uh, behold, 
I stand before you there. Boy, that's, okay, that's it. That's all I needed to know. But you're going to see the rock in Horeb, and you shall take your rod and go up and hit that rock, strike it, and the water will come out of it, gushing forth, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, this is one of these wonderful things as you study the Bible. You know, it says in 2 Timothy 2.15 that we need to study the word of God. It's not always going to be devotional and heartwarming and you get this, uh, you know, spiritual message from it. Sometimes you just got to study it and it's not necessarily devotional at this moment. Um, but I'm just studying the word of God, being to, to not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And what we discover in this passage is this whole picture, illustration, is a powerful one. We find out in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And all drank that same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock, say it with me was Christ. Wow. And so now we, we see it. The people are thirsty and they're, they're desiring. They think it's just physical water, but there's something much more going on. We just studied in Mark where the guy's friends lowered him through the roof because he was crippled. And, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. That was what was really needed. He was crippled more inside uh, and his conscience and, and his spirit was grieved and, and he knew that he was not in harmony with God and that was greater on him than the physical infirmity by far. But the friends thought, oh, what's the reason he's so unhappy? The reason he's struggling so much emotionally, the reason he's having such a difficult time is because he's crippled. He used to be the fastest guy in the school and now he just lays around. And, uh, and Jesus saw right through it and said, no, the, the, the real crippling here is going on in the inside. That's where the real healing that you're craving needs. In the same way, um, this is a picture of all of us, thirsty, needing something more. And in Matthew 5, 6, it says, blessed, oh, how happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. God has a way to take care of that thirst. God has a way to fill that hunger. Now, we looked last week at the manna. And in John 6, Jesus says, your fathers didn't give you any manna. Moses didn't give you any manna. My father gave you that manna, and that manna was me. And now, if you will eat this manna up, you'll have eternal life. And we see that this thing of, you know, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that can, uh, that, um, help me out, proceeds, proceeds from the mouth of God. Thank you. And um, I'm thirsty, and I know it has to do with the, the, the topic. <laughs> I'm, I got a weak mind, you know, the Jedi powers would work on me. This is not the droid you're looking for. Oh, let him go. Um, <laughs> I, I, I give in to subliminal messages very easily. Anyway, um, and, and so 
we, we, we realize that this is a picture of us, just like the children of Israel, longing. And Jesus brings us to this desert. His Holy Spirit is leading us unto himself. The Holy Spirit, John 16, in the world, convicting every man of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, drawing them unto Jesus. And, and so they, they, what did they really need? It's not just water. They need a spiritual drink. They need something that's going to flow, not just for a day, but unto eternal life. But yet that rock, it can't help them, can it? It's just a rock. But yet when Moses is instructed to strike that rock, and that rock is Christ. And this is what the Bible tells us. That by Jesus, it says in Isaiah 53, he was stricken and smitten of God, afflicted, that the chastisement of our well-being came upon him, and by his stripes, we are healed. And so Jesus was struck, and from him being struck, he now, the Holy Spirit, is able to come forth and fill us up and to give us eternal life. There's a great uh, interesting tradition that the Jews had once the temple was made. On the last day of the feast, they would come up and they would bring buckets of water up the southern steps of the temple and they would take these buckets and just pour them out and then they would just like a almost a waterfall, go down the steps. And um, it's basically saying, God's brought us to a land filled with the milk and honey. We have plenty. Look at all this water. We can waste it. And, and, and it was just an imagery. They weren't sure quite really why they did it. But after they pour that final bucket and everybody's standing around, they begin to, you know, Go, go their different ways. Jesus stands up in John chapter 7, in verse 37 and 38 and so forth. He says, on that day, the last day, great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if anyone thirst, what? Let them come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then he, the passage goes on. He was speaking concerning the Holy Spirit that had not yet been given. And so the water is the Holy Spirit flooding our lives and pouring over our lives and baptizing us and rebaptizing us. His Holy Spirit coming upon us and upon us um, to fill us up. And so we're going to continue to be thirsty. We're going to continue to be hungry until we're with the Lord in our brand new bodies. And this is good. It's good that we're at that place going, Lord, I, I, if I'm not filled, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm just spiritually dry right now. Anybody ever been to that place before? And, and you don't even have a spiritual desire. You know, it, it's like I, I should care about my sin. I should care about my laziness. I should care about the fact that I'm not passionate for the word or church or prayer or fellowship or sharing my faith like I once was in my life. I am, I'm lukewarm. And I know what you say about lukewarm, but I, I'm just, I don't care. 
to care. I'm, there's nothing left here. <laughs> I'm, I'm dry as a bone. And we've got to remember, the Lord has a new filling. The Lord has a new work of his spirit that he wants to pour upon us anew and afresh. So blessed are all of you, whether you are completely dried out or not. Uh, you're here tonight. You're hearing the word. God is, is here to say, I'm the rock. And that spiritual drink is what you need. It's me. Eat of the manna. It's me. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. You'll have life. Radical. What does that mean? That's hyperbole. That's huge. And he's just saying, gobble me up, man. And now with the water, it's the same thing. Just do it. Now, here's an interesting point. About 40 years from this time, in Numbers chapter 20, these children, probably not really remembering, had a very similar experience. And they're complaining, we don't have any water to do, just like their parents did. And the Lord says to Moses, go to the rock. But they're nowhere near this. But the rock was there. And if you notice in 1 Corinthians 10.4, it said that rock followed them. Isn't that radical? Wherever they went, there was that giant boulder. <laughs> How did it get there? Anybody move that? Who could move it? But it was there. But this time, the Lord said to Moses, just go up in front of the elders. And this time, what? Speak to it. Do not hit it. But Moses was angry, just frustrated with these people. And, and he said, God, why are you driving me to see my own wickedness? You're, you're driving me to see my own ugliness. These people are bringing out the worst in me. Um, like I said, if you're parents, you know how this is. And, and he strikes the rock. And God has to say, Moses... You now, even though you've spent all these decades wanting to get to the promised land, I got to make it clear to the people that was not me. You can't go in. Heavy duty. But what's the, what's the message for us? Christ only had to be crucified once. We may feel like, I need to get born again. Well, you've already been saved three times this year. Um, Went to the Greg Laurie crusade, and then he went to a guy. It's, it's, you don't need to get saved again. You, Jesus Christ doesn't need to be crucified again. We just now need to come to speak to the rock and to say, Lord, even though I'm born again and I've had moments of joy and satisfaction, feasting on you and drinking from you, right now I hunger Right now, I thirst to the point I don't even feel saved anymore. I don't even feel right with you anymore. I, I, I'm in such a, a desperate, dry place. I, I didn't think Christians get to this place. Am I saved? And, and it, that's a ridiculous question. Because whoever believes on him shall have eternal life, right? And, and, and so again here... We, we just need to come back. We, Christ doesn't need to be crucified again. You don't need to get born again again. You, you don't need to go back and lay the foundations of, of salvation um, 
as you did at the beginning. It's simply, yes, this world is a dry, brutal place, isn't it? Satan's the prince of the power of the air. Our old body, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? I thirst. I hunger. I'm, I'm in such need as if I've never even had you in my life. Well, yeah, that's the way maybe the way you feel. You're desperate right now. But hey, just the work's already been done. The rock has been struck. Now just speak to the rock and let me fill you up once again. Well, in verse 7 now. So we call the name of that place Masa, tempted or tested, and Meribah, contention. Because of the contention of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, they disrespected God. They didn't have the fear of the Lord in their words when they said, is the Lord among us or not? <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't even tell whether God's here or not. <clears throat> Pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, uh, that manna you're eating right now. Remember you guys walked across the Red Sea? We can be that way, can't we? I don't think I've ever had God answer one of my prayers. Of course, a week ago, I was telling people all kinds of prayers that God answered, but right this second, in this place, I can't remember God ever answering one prayer in this trial I'm in, right? I mean, it's, it's weird how our, we can just go on a roller coaster from super, super lows to super, super highs. That's our human flesh. It's a struggle. It's a fight. And, and, and again, we don't want to be uh, not walking in the fear of God and, and to say, God, did you save me or not? God, did you uh, really love me or not? God, do you even hear one word I say? The Bible says you answer my prayers. I don't see you doing that at all. I'm suffering here. Um, the Lord's there. He is in the midst of all these things. Well, later on, God would command them in Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Masa. You know what? In your childishness, in your immaturity, in the early days, um, that, I look past that. But now, after spending 40 years in the desert, uh, in this next generation, mm -mm. you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Serious business. Well, in verse 8, now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Notice there's no big breath or break. Right back into another test. Do you guys realize that? It's all a test. It's all a test. God doesn't need to see God, <laughs> but we need to see us, right? We need to see our hearts. We need to see, are we going to get angry or bitter? Or are we going to walk in faith as all the fathers before us gained approval before God by walking in faith? And so they're just like all of us. It's all a test. We're going from one test to another test. And uh, we win some, lose some. We're surprised how good we do sometimes. And then we're surprised how bad we did sometimes right after doing good. But anyway, they're right into another test. And Amalek is 
fighting them. Now, you know, there's one thing to fight in an honorable way. You know, when they were heading into the promised land, the Canaanites said, uh, no, we're going to we're going to face you guys all off in battle. So get ready. Oh, that 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 was that would be one way of doing it. But notice what they were doing in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 to 19. God reminds them of this Exodus 17 situation. And he said, remember what the Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks and all the stragglers of your rear. And you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around and the land which the Lord God has given you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. These guys were weasels. They were picking off the elderly. They were picking off the weary people. They were picking off the half-hearted. They, they just were looking for stragglers and just taking out people that I love and cared for. And that's, that's just unacceptable. Now, as we go back in Genesis 36, we discover that Amalek is actually the grandson of Esau, Jacob's brother. Remember, their main people were the Edomites. Well, here's another country that came out of Esau, and that was the Malachites. Um, in Numbers 13, 14, Judges 3 and 6, they always were there to attack, to join with other countries, to attack Israel. But once they got established under Saul as king, in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Samuel 15, God said to Samuel, or in 1 Samuel 15, God said to Saul, remember back when I, what I said in Deuteronomy 25, don't forget this. I want you to have the anger that I have towards them. I don't want you to have lessened in anger. I want you to remember, even though that was hundreds of years ago now, I want you to be uh, wanting justice on these people. I'm bringing it. You're, you're my hands um, as if they did it yesterday. I need you to go and, and have no mercy on these people, obliterate them, even all of their animals, all their children, all their babies. David in the psalm says, blessed is a man who dashes the babies against the rocks. I mean, God here is saying nothing left at all. And none of it is to be for you as spoil. All of it is just contaminated uh, refuge. None of it comes back to Israel. But Saul, he was not a man who had a submission to the heart of God, was he? And he went down there and he did not have any intentions of following through. He started saying to everybody, hey, there you are. Look at how good we're doing in battle. The Lord's with us. Take whatever you want. And they did. And Saul even um, got the king, Agag, and brought him back as sort of a, a trophy. And he was a celebrity. And, um, and Samuel showed up and said, Saul, what have you done? Oh, praise the Lord. We did exactly what the Lord said. Why do I hear sheep? <laughs> and he goes, oh, um, um, well, we brought back the best of what they had to sacrifice to God. You're going to sacrifice polluted animals, and you're going to use those to... No way. 
And then he says, you know, what, what, who's this, you know? And it's like, well, that's, that's King Agag, you know? Praise the Lord, isn't it? And Samuel just says, Saul, you are out of the kingdom. You, you are not going to be king. You're, you're, you're done. God's ripped the kingdom away from you because uh, you are unwilling to submit to honoring the word of God. And, um, well, interesting, uh, the Amalekites that were left end up getting strong again. And, and we find in 1 Samuel 30, they actually attacked David's city, Ziglag, captured all the wives and the kids and the spoil, burned it to crisp, and they took everything that David had. However, in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, righteous King Hezekiah in verse 42 and 43 killed off the, the country of the Malachites. They were no more. And you're going, oh, praise the Lord, the end of the story. No. Hundreds of years later, we find the book of Esther. And if you know this wonderful story, there is this guy who hates the Jews. His name is Haman the Haggagite, the Agagite. And you say, who, who is this guy? Agag, the king of the Amalekites, was named Agag. This guy took on his father's name or his great-great-great-grandfather's name. And he was in position second in power to the ruler of the world at that time of the Persian Empire, Artaxerxes. And he talked Artaxerxes into setting a day aside to kill all the Jews worldwide. And if they will do it viciously, they can have the spoils of that Jew. And it was coming close to almost happening. And God sovereignly, with his foreknowledge, had arranged to take away the queen and replace it with a new queen, Esther, to Artaxerxes, who was a Jewish woman, who ended up finally able to say, um, what this guy Haman's doing is, is wrong, but they couldn't do anything about it because the law was set. And uh, he had made this really tall gallows to hang Esther's uncle Mordecai on, and it came down to where Haman ended up hanging on those gallows. And so he was the final end. But y you see what God was saying. If the, if the Amalekites aren't destroyed, they're not going to stop till they destroy you. And you can just leave one little tiny piece. So evidently, Agag, the, the, the Amalekite king, being a king and good looking and, and the way Saul brought him back, he somehow had relations, probably with one of the, the Jewish women there. We don't know how it happened, but he ended up having a child that later on came within a hair's breadth of wiping out the Jews worldwide. And so this is such an important lesson to, to say God's, God is not, not a brutal person. He doesn't want to kill animals and children and, and these kind of things. But, but God knows things that we don't know. These nations, God said, I want to vomit them out of the promised land. And we discover they were into all kinds of deviant behavior 
uh, including bestiality, witchcraft, and, and these animals probably all were diseased, some AIDS type of thing or worse, probably all the children were diseased, because in, in, in many cases, they were able to keep the people of the land. And of course, always keep all the animals and the gold and the silver and stuff. So God didn't do this with everybody. This wasn't God's normal protocol. He was uniquely saying, I know something you don't know. And it may not happen for hundreds of years, but these people are out to viciously destroy you. And there's only one way to deal with them. And that is you now, before it happens, viciously destroy them. It's my judgment. It's not your judgment. I'm God. I can judge. And I am judging this situation. Well, in verse 9, so Moses said to Joshua, choose some of the men and go out, fight with Amalek. So here's the answer. You're going to go fight. And these slaves are going, fight? What do you mean? Well, here's a sword. Uh, what do you do with this? Here's a spear. Uh, I've never held one of these before. Here's a shield. Oh, that's, that's heavy. I don't know. You know, okay, you guys look like a soldier. I have no idea what I'm doing here. I, the Egyptians made sure they never had any knowledge of war because they knew the, they knew the, is, the Jews were more in number than them and they were afraid to be an overthrown. They didn't want, they wanted to keep them as ignorant slaves. So you guys are gonna go out and fight something you're untrained, something that's completely not within your wheelhouse to do but you don't have a choice. These Amalekites are going to keep picking us off one by one, and ultimately they, they're going to, their heart's going to be to destroy you. You've got to fight. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God. Now notice back in verse 5, it said, your rod. Moses, take your rod and go strike the rock. But now God calls it the rod of God. Well, well which is it? It's, it's both, guys. This is what one of the things we learn in this chapter. Without God, we can't, but without him, he won't. Without us, he won't. Without God, we can't. Without us, he won't. It's our rod. But when we say, God, it's dedicated to you, then it becomes the rod of God. Wonderful teaching on that. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it. I, I'm tempted, Bill, but I, I won't do it, okay? Uh, Bill Osborne looking over there, preach it. Nope, I'm not going to go there because we're going to get through this chapter here. So Joshua said to Moses, and, or, so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur, three uh, elderly guys, remember Aaron was his older brother, so probably all these 80-year-old guys, went up on top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. But when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So Moses' hands became heavy, weary. So he took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So an interesting thing here. Without Moses lifting up his hands, they were going to be defeated. But if his hands stayed up, they were going to have victory. And this is, this is serious business. Moses couldn't, you know, say, 
Oh, let's, you know, watch this, Aaron. Oh, the guy got killed. Oh, got to get back up. Oh, now look at that guy's winning. No, oh, this is cool. Look at that. He wasn't going to play around with that. People are going to die. It was serious business. He had no choice. It doesn't matter how weird this is. It doesn't matter how painful this is. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable it is. It, 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 it's, re, it's showing this, this intensity, this striving in prayer. And he's saying, I cannot not strive in prayer. And so he's hanging on to that rod, and they got it on each guy's shoulder, and he's sitting down, standing up. Oh, my shoulder's burning. Oh, my lower back is oh, seized up on me. Oh, my leg. Oh, let me sit down a minute. Oh, that makes it worse. Oh, back up. And, and, and he, he can't let it down even for a fraction of a second, lest somebody die. Man, you know, often people can get this mindset well, when it comes to Christianity, it's so full of grace. If, if there's any labor, if there's any intensity, if there's any striving, if there's any difficulty, well, God's not at it. We've got to change this up because it should be easy. You know, I should be able to just uh, cruise on into church whenever it feels right, you know, even if it's 20 minutes late and, you know, and, and I should be able to just listen to music. I shouldn't have to clap, let all the other suckers clap, you know, you know, lifting their hands. And sometimes I do when I feel like it, but most of the time I don't feel like it. And it's just not me. It sort of takes away from my cool factor a little bit. And, uh, and, 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 and it's this nonchalant attitude that, that this, this is Christianity. But this isn't what we see. Especially when it comes to the spiritual duty of prayer. A matter of fact, we, fought, we find that David in Psalm 28 says, Man, the voice of my supplication, that's earnest praying. I cry out to you. I lift up my hands towards the holy sanctuary. I find myself regularly, like Moses, lifting up holy hands as the king, as a father, as a husband. I, I'm just, Lord, help. Crying out to God, just praying and praying and praying. God's desire in 1 Timothy 2.8 is that men everywhere would pray with lifting up their hands. That's God's desire. So if there's any question about, ah, do we need to lift our hands, not lift our hands? You know what? God's desire is that men would show this surrender, right? Stop, freeze. Get your hands up, right? I used to come home when the kids were small. They would always run to the door and their hands were lifted up. You know, hold me, hold me, hold me, hold me. All their hands like little baby birds, you know, with their mouths open. You know, hold me, hold me, hold me. It's a beautiful heart of surrender. It's a beautiful heart of neediness. It's, it's this, this thing that we can do. God made these arms, like he made the branches. It says the, the, the tree branches are, have, have limbs so they can worship God. <laughs> the trees are lifting their branches up and like hands lifted up to worship the Lord. The birds of the airs are singing praises to God. They don't have a free will. They're creations of God made without a choice, like a robot to, to show the glory of God in creation. But we have a choice. But he made these arms. 
for that reason. That we could just be needy and stretch him up. But it's, it's not comfortable. God doesn't want me to do anything that's not comfortable, does he? <laughs> but it, it hurts. God, doesn't, when, God wouldn't have me do something that hurts my body, would he? <laughs> How about deny yourself, take up a cross daily and follow Jesus? How about crucify your flesh with all this passion and desire? Yeah, yes, it's, we're in a battle here. And you say, well, did, did, did Moses have a choice? Did God say, hey, Moses, you won the battle, you know, if you take a nap or, you know, you're nonchalant or you just sort of, you know, sip on some coffee with you and Aaron and her and, and watch the battle. You know, you'll have victory. But if you want to see a really good victory, then you got to really lift up your hands and get into it. Yeah, you know, I'll get into it a little bit here. Yeah, I want to. Oh, OK, yeah, I'll do it a little bit. OK, tea time. There, there was no choice for Moses. The love of Christ was compelling him to say, without this desperate heart of striving in prayer, there is no victory. And I have some wonderful sermon here and notes on this whole topic. And I wish we had time to go into it, but the verses are there in the notes. Um, and, um, but boy, the Lord teaches us on this. You know, Paul, in his example in Romans 15, 30, says, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers for me. He, he's like, the word strive there is the word agonizomai. We get our word agonize from it. Church in Rome, you don't understand. I'm not getting victory right now. I'm in prison, and I've seen some fruitful times in prison, but I'm going through a season right now that there's not even fruit with other prisoners, without guards. I'm, I'm just getting shut down. I wrote some letters, and they didn't make it out. I, I don't have a jacket right now, and I'm freezing, and it's all moldy in here. And, you, you know, and, and I know God's got a, a ministry even while I'm in prison, but it's not happening. And I don't think it's going to happen unless you guys are willing to agonize with me in prayer for me. You know, I, I find it interesting. You're saying, well, Moses kept his hands up. Could if he had done that without Aaron and her? Evidently not. You know, Jesus in Matthew 18 says, where two or three get together in my name and pray, whatever you pray on earth, it's going to happen. You can speak to a mountain. It'll be uprooted, cast into the sea. When two or three get together in Jesus' name, it will be done for you. There is just a power in prayer. And, and often I, I discover, especially Western culture, we're not in need like, like a lot of the, the parts of the world. That, that are the third world country where they're not worried about, you know, getting their IRA big enough for retirement. They're just worried about dinner for their kids. And then they're, as soon as they're finished with dinner, they're wondering if there's going to be anything for breakfast if they don't go out at 7 o'clock at night and, and, and do something to make a few more pennies to go get some eggs for breakfast. And, you know, James says the poor are rich in faith, you know. So, um, and, and I think that 
you know, Solomon said, I don't want to be so rich that I, I'm like, my heart is saying, eh, I don't need God. I've sort of got all the bases covered without him. And that's pretty much how we are. And then we hit a little trial, a Western culture type trial, not like people in, in the Arab countries that are getting a gun put to their head or beaten for getting caught with a Bible. Okay, we're not talking about that kind of trials. <laughs> we're talking about trials of, you know, I, I don't know, my air conditioner's not working on my car or something trial, you know. And, and oh, I need God, I need you to pray and fast for me. This air conditioner's gonna cost $1,000 get fixed or whatever. You know, it's, it's a different thing, and, and it's scary. that and, and God's given us the scriptures here to say, guys, we're not in our culture, with our world, with our finances, with our streets and buildings and education and healthcare and all the things that we have going for us. We're probably, the culture, the situation, is not going to lead us to being this kind of person of prayer. So you're going to just have to look at the scripture and with your brain, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, your mind here on this one, and just say, whether I feel it, whether I see it, whether I really need it, I need to have this attitude in prayer. And you know, I, I just wanted to, to sort of bring up this point here. Moses, it's clear here, if his hands came down. Not that he just did not pray, but that if he slacked off in the intensity of his praying, they would lose. That's just, to me, it just, you know, you often say, well, God knows everything, right? It's like, yes, but because he knows everything doesn't mean that we know everything. <laughs> And, and just because God has all power doesn't mean we have all power. And just because God knows what's going to happen in the future doesn't mean that we can say, oh, since God knows the future, it doesn't matter what I do today. That's ridiculous. What we do makes all the difference. What we don't do makes all the difference. In Ezekiel 22, verse 30, it says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall Stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. In James 4, 2, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You know, he, he, God is saying, I wanted victory for Israel. There were times that I did not want destruction coming upon them. And I put it on the heart of this guy to be a prophet. I put it on this heart guy to be a Moses. I put it on this heart to stand up and be a David. I put it on this heart to, but they, they resisted and resisted until their free will won. You know, Paul says, um, tell our Kippus to take heed to the ministry that he fulfill it. He wasn't, he's like, I'm, I'm checked out. I'm, I'm not gonna be a minister anymore. I'm not gonna be in leadership too hard. I know God's telling me to do it. I'm resisting it. And uh, thank you for the encouragement, Paul, but I'm going to continue to resist it. God will honor that. And so, again, it's just a very serious thing as I look at this to say we can fail in, in many different ways. But when it comes to prayer, if we fail in prayer, 
we fell everywhere, as Tozer used to say, or R.A. Tori used to say. If we fell in prayer, then we will fail everywhere. Well, in verse 14 here, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book of the recounted in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. This is the first mention ever God telling anybody to write anything down. And so, um, of course, later Moses would write the book of Genesis and, and so forth. But right now, the very first time God ever says, write this down, is on this very issue that we're talking about tonight, this issue of striving in prayer. Well, and Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner, uh, Yah Nisi. So it wasn't, we're going to call this place the place where Joshua won. We're not going to call this, call this place the place where Moses prayed. We're going to call this place, the Lord did it. <laughs> Well, the Lord wouldn't have done it without your prayers. True. The Lord wouldn't have done it without Joshua's obedience. True. God wasn't going to do it without us. But of course, without him, we couldn't. The banner is him. I love Song of Solomon 2.4. It says, he brought me to his banqueting house. This is the wife uh, speaking of her husband. And his banner over me was love. I love that. that we're going to see this word, Nisi. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, and it has some interesting things where the Lord is saying, this is my heart. My banner is, is the banner of victory through prayer. Well, finishing up in verse 16, he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Guys, once Amalek is destroyed, <laughs> the battle never ends. Because why? Amalek is a picture of the flesh, the flesh attacking us, us fighting against the flesh. It's a, it's a thing that we're always going to have to realize it's picking at us, picking at us in the weak places, in the sick places, in the weary places, in the half-hearted places. The devil is looking for our Achilles heel and, and trying to just keep picking at us, right? And, and then we've got to battle with this. I love this in Romans 8, 5 and 8 through 8. It says this, Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not sub subject to the law of God, or indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's battling you. You got to stop and battle it. In Galatians 5:17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. If you're not in this battle, you're not winning over this battle, even though your heart's wishing to walk in submission obedience to Christ, it won't happen. So what does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. In Galatians 5.24, if you are Christ, then you've got to fight the Amaleks generation to generation. You've got to keep on crucifying that flesh with all its passions and desires, right? Peter says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Boy, it's, it's a battle, but we've got
to fight it, right? And we're not going to win if we don't got people praying for us. So I love that. In, in 1 Timothy 2, it says, first of all, that prayer, supplications, intercessions, thanksgiving. There's all kinds of seasons. There are all kinds of different prayers in the course of the day. Some with your mind, some with your spirit. Some where somebody out of the clear blue, just God puts them on your heart. And you start praying, interceding. They're, get up on the mountain and lift your hands up for them. Have you had that happen? I've had that happen many times. And then I'll talk to that person maybe a, a year later, sometimes a week later. And, and they're like, man, you wouldn't believe last week. And blah, 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 blah. I'm like, when was that last week? At 2 o'clock on Tuesday. Oh, man. You know what? Even though we're on the opposite side of the world, I just did the math. 2 o'clock on Tuesday, I was stopped in my tracks and was radically praying for you while that was going on. Isn't that cool when that kind of thing happens? Intercessions, prayers, supplications, thanksgivings, just to pray without ceasing. Lord, we come before you now and thank you for this word. Thank you for washing us in the water of your word. Thank you for encouraging us in our faith, the love and good works. And I ask that all your people would be Moseses. All your people would, would quit trying to have an easy road with Christianity and begin to put on their armor, get out and sharpen their swords, to get up those shields, and that we would become the men and the women soldiers in your kingdom, fighting this spiritual battle and having victory. All we can see is Joshua. All we can see is the, what's happened in the valley. But we know that the real battle is what we can't see up on the mountain. So give us great faith to walk in the spirit, to walk with a spiritual mindedness, not 